this morning. We're going to go to Mark chapter 6 and continuing the series that we've been doing through the book of Mark or the gospel according to Mark, which we've entitled Mightier Than I. And if you're just jumping in this morning, I think we're at week 9 or 10. 9? Is it 9? Yeah. Chapter 6, week 9. Moving right along. The, the author of Mark, presumably Mark, um, introduces Jesus to the reader as the one who is mightier than I. Whole lot, obviously, could be said about Jesus and has been said for the last 2,000 years. But as we're introduced to Jesus by the gospel according to Mark, Jesus is introduced as a mighty king. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He was the one who had been promised to come and restore the kingdom as God had always envisioned it through a particular people, a family, a place, and a time. And it's, it's the precedent is set at the very outset that Jesus, he's a, he's a mighty king, come to overthrow the current kingdom, dark kingdom, an oppressive kingdom, and establish or at least inaugurate his good and new kingdom, the kingdom that his people had been long waiting for. And so he is the mighty king. He is King Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is mightier than I. And that's where we get our title. And for the last nine weeks, we've been exploring exactly what that looks like and what that means for us today. How's that? A little summary. Okay. Let's go Mark chapter six, shall we? We're going to cover a whopping six verses this morning. Some of you are like, thank God. (laughs) Normally we cover like 40. You got to get context, you know. Mark chapter six, verses one through six. He, that is Jesus, went away from there. He's with the Sea of Galilee. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath... He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. I'm titling this sermon this morning, The Marvel of Unbelief. Why do some people believe and some people don't? Ever wondered? Why, why is it in our world, full of a million and one different beliefs and worldviews and ideas and experiences, why is it that some people come to believe in Jesus and others simply don't? It's a bit of a phenomenon, really. It's not in my opinion, quite as straightforward as I think 
as we often sort of uh, view it. I think sometimes uh, faith can be talked about or thought of as almost like uh, just some sort of an emotion. Like either you wake up with it or you don't. I think it's much more complex than that. Sometimes we think of uh, a faith or a person of faith, someone's belief based on, well, they, maybe, they're, maybe they're just slightly dense. <laughs> maybe, they're, maybe they're just desperate enough. Maybe if someone's in, in, in great enough need, maybe if their wish is strong enough, then they'll find a way to fulfill it through belief. So to this idea of like uh, faith being a crutch or a, you know, something for weak, dense people to lean on because it's just they, they've got nothing else to do or believe in. Is it, is it more of a, of a spiritual phenomenon? Like you got it if God gives it to you, otherwise, eh, sorry, you didn't get picked. They're not on the team. That'd be a bit of a gross sort of understanding of faith. Um, and it would seem quite alien, particularly when we just look at it in terms of, of the scriptures. Some of you are like, hmm, I don't like that. Hmm. Why do some people believe and some people don't? Mark... Mark, the ancient biographer. I think it's fair to say that this is a bit of a biography, at least some sort of an ancient biography for sure. He's leading us on a journey of discovery. I would argue, even at this point in the gospel, that Mark clearly wants us to believe. It's like we're being led on this journey of, of, of moments and events and, and interactions we're, we're, we're being invited into this crowd of people that are following Jesus, and we are getting to join in to these moments. We're listening to his teachings. We're witnessing the, the miracles like his hometown uh, uh, friends and, and neighbors. We, we want to recognize, we're being invited by the author to recognize that this is, this is a mighty teacher, and allegedly worker of miracles and he wants us to observe these things and we're even given glimpses of how different people react differently and occasionally within the crowd one person will reach out one person will show up one person will be bold and 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 declare that no he is the one i do believe while others stand back of course the scribes and the pharisees they feature again and again throughout the story they're the ones who would seem to arguably refuse to believe but Mark wants to he wants to give us these glimpses of the various moments of Jesus's life and teachings and and show us how there's various ways of responding to Jesus most notably I would say that Mark is wanting to show us that what people are believing about Jesus is certainly much more than just an emotional response to what they're saying and hearing Jesus say and do. He's, he's providing us with eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of, of what's actually happening. 
Mark was writing with the aim to persuade us to believe as well. He's going out of his way to make it clear that his biographical summary was based upon eyewitnesses. Even the most critical uh, historians and scholars would agree with the consensus that the Gospel of Mark was written well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who Mark and the other Gospels appealed to so explicitly. Mark is an eyewitness account. More than just one eyewitness. Many, many eyewitnesses. Now, we're only up through chapter 6, but you'll notice as we go on further and further that Mark provides uh, quite a few names. And this is not arbitrary. Okay, Mark, we know for sure. Again, whether you're the most critical, secular historian or scholar or a proper Christian, there is no debate about the... the well, there's some debate. But it's well accepted that Mark was written, definitely written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses that he himself mentions in his account of Jesus. And the reason why he mentions so many names is because he wants the readers to know that, look, this is not made up. This is not speculation. This is not myth. This is not just some new spiritual idea or theory to be pondered. This is... This is a real person. These are real lives. These are real events. And you can cross-reference the eyewitness testimony yourself. Mark wants us to believe. He's trying to convince us. Notice how many eyewitnesses Mark names explicitly in his Gospels. Let's go through the list. Some of you are like, this is so boring. Let me just speak to your head for a second, okay? And we'll get to the heart. So he starts, of course, with the 12 apostles, and he names each one of them. Simon, who later on becomes known as Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, Andrew and his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, he's very specific, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who later betrayed him. The 12, all mentioned by name. Uh, Last week, we read about Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue, who believed that Jesus had the power to heal his daughter who was on the verge of death. Um, Eventually, we get to Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. You guys remember the story of blind Bartimaeus, the beggar who had a little spot? on the road just outside of Jericho. He's, he's named, first name and father as well. This, this is a known guy, Bartimaeus. Of course, there's Herod, the Roman-appointed king of Judea, Pilate, the governor, Barabbas, the guy who was supposed to be crucified, but instead they're like, no, crucified Jesus, we'll take Barabbas. A little exchange, a little political move there. How about Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He was the guy who, when Jesus could no longer carry his cross to the mound, the Roman centurions grabbed this guy named Simon from Cyrene, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus. This, he's, he's going out of his way to say, you guys know Simon of Cyrene. Remember the father of Alexander and Rufus? Talk to him yourself. He was there on the road. 
He helped Jesus carry his cross. You can check this out. Of course, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and uh, Salome, the three women who were the witnesses of Jesus' crucifixion. They were also the three who were there when Jesus was put into the tomb. They saw exactly where he was buried. And of course, they were also the three who showed up Sunday morning to, to anoint the body with, with, uh, with burial fragrance. Of course, they were the ones that discovered the empty tomb. And finally, there was Joseph of Arimathea, the respected member of the Jewish council. That's 26 names. This is an eyewitness report. And Mark, the author, is wanting to make the point that if you want to take this seriously, you have ample reason to believe that this actually happened. Now, of course, you would say, yeah, but uh, all these people are totally dead. How exactly am I supposed to cross reference? That, of course, is, is to royally miss the point. Of course, we are not going to cross-reference the eyewitness testimony. But the point is simply that as we're reading the testimony of Mark, we need to recognize that this isn't mere myth or lore. This is an historical document that's being written to persuade future readers that this actually happened. This is based on eyewitness testimony. Without credible eyewitness testimony, the true account of Jesus' life and teachings would have quickly devolved into the realm of mere lore and legend, like so many ancient hero myths that have risen prior to and since the life of Jesus. This is not mere lore or legend. This is not another hero myth. This is eyewitness testimony that has been passed down to us. We need to take it as such. Yet some believe and some do not. Why is that? Why did, when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, why did his family Although they recognized that, man, who is this man with the wisdom and the, and, and the, the miracles and the power? And the, but isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary? Isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and, and Judas? And isn't this Jesus, the little Jewish boy who grew up in Nazareth that we all know? And so they were offended And I would argue it would seem as if they refused to believe, despite what they could see for themselves. They just simply couldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. Why is that? I think there's at least a few things that we we can pull out of the text. Three things. Number one, cultural inoculation. You guys know what inoculation is? You know, if you're, if you're trying to not get the flu, you go get a flu shot, and what you're really doing is going to get very small dosage of, of the, the flu virus so as to inoculate you from, like, the real thing. I would argue that at least at some level, what's happening in this, this moment 
is that because Jesus was so familiar to the people that he grew up around, his hometown neighbors and relatives, it would seem that there was some sort of like familial or cultural inoculation taking place. They couldn't get over the fact that, no, this is the Jesus that we grew up knowing. I know who this Jesus is. And they couldn't get past what they had been conditioned to understand of him their whole lives up until this point. It would seem that they had been inoculated to who this Jesus truly was. They grew up seeing and understanding Jesus a particular way. The Jesus that many people refuse to believe in has nothing to do with the actual Jesus of the scriptures. We, we live in, um, in a Western sort of American society. You do realize Christianity like totally did not start in America, right? I always find it very ironic when people make the argument, well, of course you're a Christian, you grew up in America. And I'm like, that is so incredibly ironic <laughs> because this Jesus couldn't be any more far removed from like the American culture and experience. And yet if you grow up in America, there is a very good chance that you've been inoculated to Jesus. Because you've heard the stories, you've seen the movies. You've laughed at the memes. And so in our minds, it's very easy to think, oh yeah, I, of course, I, know, I, I get the Jesus thing. I grew up in church. I went to Sunday school for like the four, first four years of my life. Like, I get the Jesus thing. That was certainly my story. I grew up in Sunday school and very grateful for that. Don't get me wrong. But eventually I got to the point in my life where I was like, yeah, been there, done that. I, I, I get the whole Jesus thing. I get that my parents were totally into it, um, but I don't know, I'm, me not so much. And you can get to that place in your own thinking that you, you get Jesus, but you so do not get Jesus. Certainly his, his neighborhood relatives and friends, they, they couldn't see past the Jesus that they had always seen growing up. They had been inoculated. And we can become inoculated. This is what happens when we have our understanding of who Jesus is um, based more on what our family or spiritual tradition or denomination tells us to believe versus what the eyewitnesses tell us Jesus is truly all about. This is such a hard thing because oftentimes you can grow up with a wonderful um, Maybe God-loving parents, a family. Maybe, maybe you were blessed to be born into a Christian family. Um, parents who loved the Lord and taught you. This is who Jesus is. This is what the scriptures say. And that's such a gift. But inevitably, you might discover that there were some other things kind of mixed into that experience. Mixed into your understanding. And you might find that along the way, your denomination didn't have the perfect, infallible interpretation of God's word. And there might be some ways that you have been conditioned 
to view Jesus that are wrong. You could be wrong. And you've been so conditioned to always view Jesus and understand him in a particular way. Which is why we need to go back to the eyewitness accounts. Which is why we need to take the testimony seriously. So that's inoculation. Number two, spiritual deception. The Apostle Paul, he wrote in one of his letters to Timothy, one of the young leaders in that first century church, um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, he, he's talking about uh, those who would come in and corrupt people's understanding of Jesus. He describes them as those who have the quote-unquote appearance of godliness, and yet they deny the true power of Christ through their actions. They're always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. He describes them as evil people and imposters who go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In that same letter, he goes on to say to Timothy 4.3, he says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound or healthy teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There is a very real thing as spiritual deception. Whether it's the serpent deceiving the woman in the garden or just people. With, whether with, with, with uh, malevolent or, or unintentional intentions, uh, there are people out there who are saying things that simply aren't true about Jesus. Now, you, you might be thinking, what about you? What makes, what makes you stand above the lot? That's a great question. To be honest with you, it's exactly the question you should be asking. Without becoming cynical and suspicious and arrogant and thinking that everyone's suspect, can we grapple with the reality that there are a lot of voices out there who are actually just deceiving um, the masses, twisting the truth? And can we even go so far as to admit to ourselves that part of us sometimes even wants that. We want people to lie to us. I want people to justify my sin for me. I want people to tell me that my Jesus is cool with my sin. Please lie to me. It'll make life so much easier. Is that true? That's, that's, that's difficult, is it not? I am, I, am, I am suggesting that every one of us here in this room, at some level, actually desire to be lied to. We have itching ears. We want to accumulate for ourselves people who will simply affirm 
what I want to believe about God, about this world I'm living in, about the way life is meant to be. And if Jesus, if the Jesus that we're being introduced to by the eyewitnesses, those who actually walked with, listened to, followed, and got to know the Jesus who conquered death, the one who is mightier than I, if that Jesus contradicts how I want to live my life, then perhaps I'll go find someone else to convince me otherwise. Perhaps I will attempt to accumulate for myself teachers that will simply affirm what I want to believe about Jesus. That, that, is, that is hard. Why do we do that? Number three, because Jesus is offensive. The gospel is offensive. The truth that I am a broken human being. I'm sinful. I can be incredibly selfish, even on my best days. Really, is, is, is not something we like to be told. When was the last time someone that you trust looked you in the eye and told you, my friend, you are wrong. The way you're acting, it's, uh, it's dishonest. It's, uh, it's selfish. It's cowardly. It's... Uh, hypocritical and God really wants to help you he wants to heal you in fact he sent his son Jesus to die for you because you and I apart from our rescuing loving merciful creator are, are lost we're, we're damned and we need to be rescued we need our creator to, to step into our mess and make us right, to heal us, to set us free, to give us new hearts that actually have uh, the desire to, to experience the life that we were created for in the first place, God's version of life, new life. But there's something about being told that we need to be rescued, that we're wrong, that we're dead in our sins, and that apart from God himself stepping into our sin, dying for us, rescuing us, we're lost without him. There's something about that that just, it's like a death blow to the ego. It's like Chuck Norris to a cinder block. It's just like, we'll fight it, we hate it. It's not fun. The Bible describes it as dying to self. The gospel pummels our ego relentlessly. And it really, really damages our pride. It's, it's offensive. It's offensive. And so why do some people believe and some people don't believe? It's possible. It's possible. I don't want to create this sort of like false sort of dichotomy of like, well, if you believe this, if you don't that. 
There's much, much more that could be said. And there's so many layers to the emotion, the thought process of believing. I think there's a lot of people who have genuine questions, who are wrestling with, with real and honest objections to the claims that the Bible makes about God and, and people. And fair enough, that's good. Because I'm just saying the number of people that I've met over the years who they... They've not actually done the honest research. They've not actually looked into the arguments and take a hard, honest, long look at, well, is there any truth to these claims? I mean, there's some fantastic, very accessible books out there. Uh, Richard Bauckham in his uh, seminal work, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It was like a 700-page tome arguing for why, in fact, the eyewitness counts that have been given to us, that have been preserved in the scriptures, are, are incredibly um, reliable and strong arguments for the authenticity of, of the scriptures, of what we know about Jesus. Or even something as, as simple and, and easy to read as like Lee Strobel's A Case for Christ, Josh McDowell's Evidence Demands a Verdict, um, More Than a Carpenter, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. These are great books, and the arguments are, are considerable, strong arguments. And I would say if you're struggling to believe, then all right, fair enough. Do some research. Wrestle with the arguments. And if you still find yourself struggling to believe, I would say consider the state of your heart. Consider the fact that actually what might really, truly be at stake is the state of your own ego. I know these are, this, you know, I don't I hope I'm not, I'm not trying to be offensive or rude. I just know my own heart. I know that one of the reasons I refused to believe in Jesus for years was number one is because I had been inoculated. I, I, thought, I, I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I knew Jesus been there, done that, and I realized I, I didn't. I had knowledge about, but no knowledge of this God who, who's come to rescue us in Christ. I know that for many years, even though there was, there was a part of me that was becoming convinced that the true Jesus was the one who I was actually looking for, I didn't want to believe because I, I enjoyed my lifestyle. I didn't want to give up the, you know, my sin. I didn't want to give it up. I didn't want to start living differently. I didn't want to, I was living with my girlfriend. I was enjoying my, my, my mates and smoking my weed and, and viewing my porn. And I wasn't like murdering people or like, you know, doing like really bad things. But I knew that if I was to like give in and begin to consider the fact that well maybe Jesus is who he claims to be and maybe he does want me to surrender my life to him and I thought if I do that that's good <clears throat> excuse me that could mean a whole lot of change and then when it came right down to it 
it was just too hard to admit that perhaps I've been wrong all this time. And my ego was just fighting for dear life. What about this is helpful for someone who does believe in Jesus? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, that's, that's interesting. Well, three points there. Um, but I do believe. I'm a believer. I, I, can, I can relate with some of those things, and, and I myself have, have come to that point where I realize, like, yeah, I, I, need to, I need to surrender to Jesus for who he really is and just let my ego be crushed at the cross, and I'm going to follow Jesus it, it, what does this mean for, for the follower of, of Jesus? I would say this, the same faith that you exercised the day that you said yes to entrusting your life and eternity to Jesus is the same faith that you need to continue exercising today and every day from here on out. The same sorts of, of struggles that we have to believe to just say yes to Jesus in the first place will be the same things that we have to confront as we continue to follow Jesus on a day-to-day. On a day-to-day. It's so easy after you've been sitting in a church chair for maybe a year, two, three, ten years to begin getting inoculated all over again. Give me a new message. Give me a new teaching. Let's go deeper. I want to get into the meat And you get over the simple, beautiful, powerful, life-changing truth of the cross. And you think, I want to graduate. Let's let's go. I'm going to go to Christian grad school. And we become inoculated, the simple truth. You hear 1 Corinthians 13 read from the stage, and you're like, come on, give give me a verse I've never come across before. Love, really? Come on. Let's talk about, like, the second coming or the rapture or something. Come on, let's, really? You become inoculated to the message of love? It doesn't get any more advanced than that as followers of Jesus. When Paul was writing his letter to the Corinthians, he was saying, man, you wanna pray in tongues, you wanna prophesy, you wanna do all of this awesome, exciting, powerful, deep stuff? Let me tell you about the most excellent way And I could see the Corinthians like, yes, give it to me. Dragon scroll time. (laughs) And he begins to teach them the way of love. And so we too can become inoculated to the simple and powerful truths of the gospel and who Jesus is. And absolutely, as we fight to overcome temptation. As we realize that that God is at work in our hearts and he's teaching us to say no to sin and yes to him, to righteousness, we're gonna be confronted with things that we've thought, well, but I thought this was okay. I, I thought it was fine if I can just sleep with my partner out of wedlock. Like surely like we were, we're past that, right? Because my culture tells me that that sort of idea of sexuality and marriage is archaic. And so, gosh darn it, let me go just Google this thing so I can find a teacher who will affirm how I want to live. And if I can find some Greek that will help me do that, awesome. And let me tell you something, you don't have to look hard at all 
This is just, man, it's still right up there, like page one. Google, bam. Thank you, Google. Guys, our ears will itch. I'll be like, I want, I want, give me, I want a church that will make me feel like I'm smarter and that will make me laugh and that will really just affirm me and never tell me that I'm wrong. Never tell me that I'm in sin and that I need to repent and allow Jesus to transform me so that I can become more like him. We have to believe Jesus to overcome our, to overcome deception and our desire to be lied to, even as we'll lie to ourselves. And finally, we need, we need to be okay with being offended by the cross. We need to be okay with saying, I was wrong. We need to hope that there's someone in our life who does love us and that we trust enough so that they come to us and say, hey man, I've noticed that the way you've been treating your housemate or the way that you've been abusing a particular substance or the way that you have been uh, viewing certain things online or etc etc i've noticed that they, these 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 things are not characteristic of a follower of jesus christ won't won't you won't you give that up won't you please just Embrace the fact that you're wrong and let your ego die. We need to be able to trust Jesus in that way. We need to be able to say, I might be wrong, but it's worth, it's worth being right with God. I would rather have my ego crushed then go limping along with this false sense of security for the rest of my life. That just ends up in, in death. Um, can I invite the band to come up on stage, please? So guys, the point in considering unbelief, talking about some things, uh, you know, I've tried to be as honest as I can, talk about our, just, just the way we are, our nature, um, isn't just so that everyone can leave here thinking like, oh man, like, phew, I feel a little beat up. And, you know, sometimes you can almost even feel good about like, oh yeah, I'm, I really got got beat up by the pastor. So some people are into that. It's like this weird, it's like this spiritual masochism kind of thing. It's almost like, like doing penance. 
oh, I feel really bad about myself. God must be, be pleased with that. Like, no, no, that's not the point at all. God deals with us. He disciplines us. He addresses us as sons and daughters. If, in fact, you are a believer, if you're like, look, I'm trusting Jesus with all I've got, then know that your, your, your heavenly Father loves you and wants to, to talk to you and discipline you and deal with you and I because he wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature. He wants, to, he wants us to learn how to love like he loves and to love others accordingly. He wants us to experience life, life in all of its fullness. He wants us to grow in our willingness to trust him even more so that we can go out of this place. Yeah, maybe feeling a bit bruised, like, ugh, my ego really, really took a beating that time, but so that we can experience new life, so that we can let go of old ways of thinking, so that we can repent. We can go out here and say, you know what, today I'm gonna, I'm gonna change something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace the scriptures. I'm going to embrace Jesus. And I'm going to say, you know, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to give that up. I'm going to change that. And I'm going to go forward. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to experience a different kind of life. Oh, and it will be hard. I have to tell you that. I have to tell you that. You're the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. You'll be so grateful for God's grace. He gives us everything we need for the life that he's called us to. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.